Some mistakes that we make in life have consequences that last into eternity. Some sins we commit have consequences that last into eternity. Some failures that we make have consequences that last into eternity. But each one of those failures, mistakes, and sins has also another reality. Because it isn't just what happens when we commit something that we regret. It isn't just what happens when we take a step trying to do something great and fail doing it. It's also what happens after the failure. What happens when it's all done and said and everyone looks at you and says, what a loser. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Hey, we love new people here. We love that you invite your friends. Uh, That is part of the kingdom call. It is to truly disciple the next generation, but people don't get discipled unless they are hearing the gospel. And who, Paul says, can hear the gospel unless someone tells them. And so every time you invite someone, they have the opportunity to hear the gospel. And so we are just so grateful for your faithfulness to continually call people to faith and to call people to a community of believers. This is a home that we pray is a safe space for you, a place where you can find respite from your busy weeks and a place where you can encounter Jesus. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, every single one of us walks into this place with a variety of past sins and failures and mistakes. And God, we come into this space sometimes wondering, Lord, what can come of me? a woman, a man who has done all these things, who has had these things done to me, who has had missteps. And Lord, I wonder, what can my future look like? And so God, I pray that you would speak loudly into the void of our past sins, mistakes, and failures and speak a word of truth that would bring such conviction and beauty and hope that we might see that there is actually more light than darkness ever before. In Jesus' name. Amen. I was 19 years old and I just started working at a public school ministry called The Basement. And its target audience were public school kids. I'd gone to public school. I felt like, man, I want to reach out to public school kids. Absolutely. So they sometimes don't have as much exposure to, uh, you know, church and youth groups and stuff that people go to a private school do. How many private school kids do we have here, huh? All right, all right. Everyone else is like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I I went to both, so I'm kind of like the, yeah, kind of guy, okay? Well, I was in this space and met these two great sisters, beautiful voices. They were artists. They came out with an album. I mean, they just had an incredible heart for the kingdom, and they were in high school, and I would 
laugh with them. I would talk with them. I would just interact with them week after week. And I just got so close to them. And then all of a sudden, I learned about the family dark past. I learned about something that had happened in their family, something they never talked about. But they happened to start saying something, our brother is going to get released. Our brother is coming out of prison. I was like, oh, oh, wow. Let me read you the news article came out about their brother. Young, drunken driver lives with regret. August 2001. Before leaving the party, the whole group of friends that left together did talk about whether Mark should drive or not. They were worried that Mark had been drinking, and they decided yet to allow Mark to drive. And so five of them piled into Mark's car, a black 1993 Eagle Talon, two high school girls aged 15 and 16, who had sneaked out of their houses that night, two of Mark's buddies and Mark himself, 18 years old, tall, handsome, and fresh out of Buchanan High School, with a gift for golf and a college scholarship, all but assured. It was 1.20 in the morning. The talent sped along a dark rural road in Berrien County where I went to school and into a wide curve. Mark had driven it many times, only this time he was drunk and going almost 80 miles an hour. One of two of the boys in the back, one of them who would walk away only with minor injuries, saw what was coming and snapped his seatbelt in place before the car crashed into two trees. The others never knew what hit them. Mark survived with injuries, although he was not wearing a seatbelt. He said he still does not remember the accident. The other boy in the back, who apparently was also wearing his seatbelt, was critically injured. He is now learning to walk again. Mark said he knows exactly what was going on that day. Because just recently before that, another young man, Pierno, who was thinking about what happened to Mark, was about to also face jail and prosecutors himself and the victims and the victims' parents. And he would live with inextinguishable remorse. I regret it all day long, every day. He has little advice for Pierno other than this. Strap in, get ready for a ride because a lot of things are going to change in your life now. He faced 5 to 15 years in prison because, unfortunately, those two young girls that sneaked out that night died that night. Dead. Gone. Some mistakes that we make in life have consequences that last into eternity. Some sins we commit have consequences that last into eternity. Some failures that we make have consequences that last into eternity. But each one of those failures, mistakes, and sins has also another reality. Because it isn't just what happens when we commit something that we regret. It isn't just what happens when we take a step trying to do something great and fail doing it. It's also what happens after the failure. 
What happens when it's all done and said and everyone looks at you and says, what a loser. Now, that's what we think in our head. But the reality is that most people aren't actually seeing people call them a loser and total waste of a life and complete jerk and idiot. No, they're actually looking at people sometimes who do something daring and great and say, wow, at least they tried. Now, that's not always the case when sometimes we do something like a sin that has consequences. Then you see the judgment. As one person always said, it isn't the great things that you do that everyone recognizes. It's the stupid, foolish, and dumb things you do that everyone recognizes. Wouldn't it be awesome if every time you go into your school or you go into work and your boss or your colleagues, they look at you, dude, you aced that test last week. Wow, I'm so proud of how you led that project. That was beautiful. Man, you did so well at this. I love how you're doing that. Great, phenomenal. Instead, usually it's like a little bit of praise and a lot of bit, how in the world did you miss this? What were you thinking? Are you stupid? What? You know, the list goes on, right? People always want to look and judge our worst days as the biggest thing of our life and forget everything that we did that was right. So how do you in your life now take that next step of saying, what do I do after failure? What do I do? This series that we're in, I Feel Like A, is all about the life of David and the different phases of his life. Tonight, we're going to look at one of the phases called failure that he went through. And we start with failure because you have to realize, as Thomas Edison said, I learned 10,000 different ways how not to make a light bulb. And then I found the one that made all the difference. It isn't about failure that sets the tone of your life. It's about what you do after failure. So think about this, though. When you're in the moment of failure... You don't think about what will come next and that supposedly there's a great story that'll end. No, it's darkness and despair. I've sat with countless young adults, unfortunately, who have told me about what had happened in their life and they recount the feeling of one thing that they just want to do, die. I wish I wouldn't be here anymore. I don't know how many of you have ever felt that. You made a mistake, you did something to someone, you have shame building in your life and heart. The only thing you want to do is run. But what if there was a different way? What if there was something else you could do? We're going to take a look at David now in 2 Kings chapter 12, 11 and 12. And I want to paint this picture of what we can learn from one of David's most significant and public failures. You heard the text read Bathsheba. An incredible woman. The text calls her beautiful. And the level of beauty that she was called with is a level of beauty that was not just like a normal, wow, she's, she's, she's kind of attractive. But it's a, a beauty that was used in the Hebrew text only for select women. Vashti uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's court. You had Esther who was called this level of beauty. This was truly like, wow. So when David saw her from the top of his kingdom, this palace that we saw, he noticed something powerful. In the book of James, it says that it isn't God who tempts us, but rather our eyes that are drawn into sin of our own kind. Mm. I don't know how many of you have seen things you regret seeing because 
10 minutes later, like, how did I get into this portal? How did I get into this relationship? How did I manage to get into this train of thought? How did this happen? So we jump into the text now in verse 6. You heard verses 1 through 5. David made a woman pregnant. We start in verse 5. And the woman conceived Bathsheba. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, what you don't understand in the text is the fact that when she says she's pregnant, she gives him his note. But at the same moment that she gives him that note, she also is giving David her husband's death wish. Because what are the options? What other option does David have? Well, he's a king and he's prideful. There's no way he's going to just simply make amends. He hides the failure as long as possible. Failure builds strength when excuses and hiding build. I don't know how many of you have ever done something you really regret. You try and cover it up. I remember I was six years old. Talk about one of those moments in life when you're not thinking, right? I saw a watch I really liked. It was one of those with a calculator on it. Big deal. Big deal in 1992. All right? Now you're like, I got an iPhone and I got an iWatch and I can just do everything with this thing. Well, okay, listen, we had to push buttons and stuff. It was a different time back then, okay? It's the 90s. The 90s, I wasn't even born in the 90s. Some of you here, who was not born in the 90s or 80s? All right, we got some. Someone's like, oh, oh. All right, we got a good dozen of you. Well, the reality is I saw this watch and I stole it. I went like this. I like kind of, kind of backed up behind it. I'm like talking to everyone. And then I like happened to put it in my pants. And then I, you know, put my shirt in. And then I walked away and the watch wasn't there. My buddy Julian, who was my arch enemy, talked about Julian before. He was a German. Right. And I was from Eastern Europe. We were imprisoned by those guys. So I took it seriously at six years old. I'm not going to have history repeating itself in the classroom. I'm going to take everything I can from that guy. Anyways, I took the watch because I really wanted it. And the next day... My six-year-old mind couldn't comprehend the fact you can't wear what you steal to school the next day. And so I take it to school and wearing it in front of everyone. And my good buddy who noticed me that morning and said, hey, that's Julian's watch. I said, no, it's not. And he said, you're going to get caught. What? This is my watch. And I kept going defiantly. I should have listened to him, hit it in the bushes or something, and then grab it later. That's terrible, I know, but yeah. Well, anyways, I get caught, obviously, because I was an idiot. And the teacher tries to convince me just to tell the truth. Julian looks at me and says, that's my watch. I keep defying and excusing and excusing and trying to hide and lie. No, it's mine. And then he says, I know. Let's try the plus sign on that watch. 
because on my watch, the plus sign's broken. Oh, shoot. Sure enough, the plus sign was broken. Well, I still kept defying and lying and defending and excusing. My mom tried to get the truth out of me later that night. Philip, you're going to get suspended from school if you keep lying. Mom, I'm not lying. I found it at a party. I'm six years old. I don't go to parties. <laughs> right? When we do things that we're not proud of, our ego flares up. Ego is a strong word. Ego, as was built up by Freud and others who are in the psychological fields, they said ego is that one thing that we want to protect with everything that we have within us. If we can protect our ego, we feel as though everything inside of us will still exist. And so if our ego is completely destroyed, then it's like we're destroyed. Ah, so we lie, we continue to perpetuate the excuses, and we don't want to tell the truth because failure can never exist in our life. I'm pregnant, she says. So David sent word to Joab, his general, send me Uriah the Hittite, her husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and, and wash your feet. Wash your feet. Now, you don't understand the significance of that statement. And you're like, hey, go wash your feet. Go wash your feet. You know what I'm saying? You guys are still like, uh, what? Go wash your feet. Go sleep with your wife. Go spend some time with her. In that Middle Eastern culture, to get your feet washed was to relax, to get taken care of, and to enjoy. And so when you see your friend next time and you're like, bro, you're getting close to washing your feet with that girl. Be careful. He's like, what? You know, don't be going to wash your feet. Anyways, there he is. David looks at him and says, go wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. You see, David, when he was a man of integrity, when he was a man who was leading his soldiers out in battle, he taught them all this. When we're in battle, we don't seek pleasure. When we're in battle, our focus is on the battle. Uriah, a man who was a mercenary, he wasn't even an Israelite. He actually was someone who was of a different land. He was a person, you see that? That was pretty sweet. Uh, that's how we do it here at Praxis. Just catch things in midair. One of you want to jump here? I'll catch you. He was a mercenary, someone who was a man of integrity. He's not an Israelite. He didn't have to be there. He didn't have to be with these people. But his wife, Bathsheba, also, some textual scholars believe that she also wasn't even an Israelite. She was of another foreign land. Now, 
one theologian, Adventist theologian, Richard Davidson, he writes about this story very much so. And he said what happened to Bathsheba was literally a rape of power. This wasn't just, hey, come over. Man, David, you're a hottie. Yeah, my husband, total douchebag. Let's do this. Let's wash feet. No, that's not what happened. It is a story of voyeurism, one taking advantage of another. Whenever there's an authority in your life and they're coercing, there's no consent, and there's forceful manipulation and abuse of power, sexual abuse. And that's exactly what happened here. Now, some people would look at this story and they have pity on David. And I understand that picture. David's now getting older. I like how one of my good friends, he's here, Calvin Thompson, professor of religion, he looks at this picture. A man who was struggling, who was older in his age, might have even been hurt and was recovering. There's no reason why the king wouldn't be out with his men, dealing with loneliness, boredom, and hardship. Now, regardless of the situation, no excuse can cover our failure. Doesn't matter how horrible their past is. Doesn't matter what they've been through, the abuses that they went through, the hardships they went through. Whatever happened, happened because they chose diligently and intentionally to go along with what they did. And so Uriah, the bigger man in this situation, slept at his door. And when they told David, Uriah, verse 10, didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, in these tents. And my lord Joab, the general, and the servants of the Lord, they're all camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house, eat, drink, and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I can't do that thing. Wow. Uriah shows David. He tries to convince him again, tries to convince him, stay one more night. He gets him drunk. Drunkenness, alcohol, wow. I don't know how many of you think about just the next step of what you're going to do in your life. And you're like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal to do this or this or this. But the consequences are huge. Because what is about to happen and what David is about to do will change eternity for him. Think wisely the choices you're about to make. We jump then back into the story and we find out that David then takes another step, realizing that this guy, after one attempt, won't do what David wants him to do. Wash your wife's feet. Doesn't do it again. Hey, go to your house. Go sleep with your wife. Nope, not going to do it. And then he does the only thing he thinks he can do. Send this man into the heat of battle and he tells his general in the letter, then pull back from him so that he might be killed. Now, what we don't always catch in the story is that Joab, the general, actually doesn't just send Uriah the Hittite in. He actually sends more men in because he doesn't want it just to seem like they were just trying to kill this one dude. He actually sends many men in and he pulls back. Is it Key thing I never saw in the text. I wondered, why is it that there's more guys in dying and I don't understand? Oh, he's trying to cover it up. 
You see, David doing this one thing, trying to kill one man, actually might have killed dozens more of his men. One act, one moment. Now, we can dwell in the darkness of this failure for another hour or two, but we're not going to sit there. Let's now look at chapter 12 for a moment. Let's see what happens here. Now, the Lord was displeased with what David had done, the end of chapter 11 says. And the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. And he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, and the one was rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very many flocks and herds, but the poor man, he just had this one little ewe lamb. And that he brought. And he brought it up, and he grew it up, and he took care of it, and it was with his children. It used to eat his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd. And when he saw the guest, he took the poor man's little lamb and prepared it for his traveler who had come to him. Then David's anger greatly kindled within him against this man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan looked at David and he said, You are the man. This isn't like, hey, you're the man. This is, you're the rapist. You're the one who stole. You're the murderer. You're the liar. You're the swindler. You're the abuser. You utterly displeased God. What does he do next? This is the moment everyone needs to now put in our minds. There's failure that is intentional, that is like a sin. And then there's failure that is you just trying to do something great in life and it just doesn't work out. Hey, you took that step, you asked the girl out, she said, ah, bro, no thanks. Or she ghosted you, didn't respond back to your text. Or, or you try to do super well on an exam and it's just like the paper comes back and it's like, wait, wait where's the red? Where's the red? We need the red, the red. And you get this back, and it's like, big, fat, F. Is there an F plus? No, there's no F plus. I'm a teacher. I don't need F. There's no F plus. There's no F plus. That's a different type of failure. When you try something great, and you make a mistake, or you just don't study hard enough. But then there's failure that falls in the realm of sin. It's a very different type of failure. A failure by choice. Here, David now has a decision to make. He had the failure of choice. Whether you're the failure of just doing something great and it doesn't work out, or the failure of intentionality, what do you do next? Look at the text now in verse 7. You are that man. And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you over to your master's house, your master's wives. Everything was yours. And if it were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you displeased the Lord? And boom, now we go to verse 
15. And then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and became sick. Awful. Now, the verses preceding this, David did something that's the beginning of what to do when you commit failure. Whether it's failure of unintentionality, just trying to do something great, but especially if it's failure of intentionality and the level of sin. He goes in there, verse 13, and he says, I sinned. I sinned. Step number one, when you commit a failure, recognize you failed. If you go back to ego and try and protect ego, it won't lead you anywhere. It will lead you deeper and darker into failure. So step number one, when you fail, admit that you failed. Admit. A, D, looks like a B, M, I, T. Number one, admit. But the next thing is, you have to admit as David says, and confess, it's the next thing. When you hurt someone, you have to go then to them and make amends. Sometimes it's to yourself. You have to confess to yourself, man, I screwed up. I really messed this thing up. But then David went to God. Number two, confess. Lord, I made a mistake. I did this thing. Go to that girl that you hurt. Go to that guy that you said those things about. Go to that person. Go to that parent. Go to the whatever it is. Go to that next level. Admit, confess. Confession leads, though, to repentance. Repentance, a word in the Greek, metanoia. It means this idea of a total turnaround. When you seek a new path, it means you seek a new path. It's literally the turnaround. You take a step in a different direction. When we fail in life, you can't continue walking down the same way. What's that thing that's said about people who continually walk down the same path hoping a different result? Insanity. You're crazy. You keep doing the same thing. You, you take the energy drinks. You, you take the Adderall thinking you're going to be able to stay up all night. And then you take the test and you get the F+. Every time. Dude, you can't do that. You actually got to study. You got to keep things up. You got to keep going down that road. Okay, so you don't want to continually be addicted to this thing or that thing or go down this road. You got to do something different. Metanoia, repentance is that third step, the turning around. Failure, though, is this thing too. Some people need a revision of failure. Number four. Reimagine in your mind a revision of what failure is, though, in life. When I was talking to Pastor Randy about the sermon, he said, Philip, I need you to recognize this one thing that I hope you can convey to everyone. Failure sometimes is the best thing in someone's life. What? He said, failure is the best thing to happen in your life. What's worse is actually success. Ooh. When you walk down the road of success, you become like David, too big to fail. Like the hedge fund companies now that are trying to fight GME and AMC. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. That's okay. I shouldn't be wasting my time with stocks, but I am. Okay. Dustin, you know what I'm saying. Okay. But it's when you feel like you're too big to fail, 
and you hide and make excuses and you fight against it. But you have to reimagine though what failure is. The beautiful vulnerability of sharing your failure can actually become your greatest asset in life. Where then your failure is transformed into your greatest strength. It was my first year of being a pastor. First year. I was asked to do a baby dedication. There, a precious child there in the back. A baby just the size of my own son, eight-month-old John Philip. It was a family that was just coming to church. The wife had never even been into too many churches. The husband was kind of, you know, had been in a hard journey in life. He had kind of gotten rejected in faith, and he walked this hard path. And some of the young families, in particular one mom, was just like, Philip, can you reach out to this family? I think you could really connect with them. And sure enough, we connect. I go to their house, do some house visitations. We talk. We have a great time. I invite them to even share and do scripture up front. And sometimes you're like, oh, wait, is Pastor Philip asking me to do scripture? What is he trying to say about that? I ask those who are coming back to church to do things up front when I was in that first year. I just wanted them to feel important. They feel like they're recognized. I'm not doing that now. So if I ask you to do something, don't feel like, oh, what is he saying about me? But he was starting to feel really connected to our church. And then he got to the point, he was like, hey, would you, would you dedicate our child? Our family's going to fly in. We have everyone coming. And we want you to do this for us. Would you do this honor for us? I was like, absolutely. This is wonderful. And it was going to be at their house. Well, church happens. They weren't at church. They were kind of preparing for it. They texted me. They said, hey, we're getting ready for this. It's going to be wonderful. I was excited for it that morning. Well, you know the pastor's life. My excuses are going to begin now. We got a lot. There's a lot of things. Hey, pastor, can you do Hey, pastor. Hey, pastor. Hey, pastor. And I was exhausted. I was just dead tired. But it was also exhausted emotionally. Things were just going on in life, and it was just a hard season, my excuses, okay? And I start driving back home, okay? We lived in Loma Linda. I was working back in Laguna Beach. That was where the church was. And I'm halfway into the trip on the 91, the hellish highway of Southern California, and I was stuck in traffic, like an hour in, and I still had an hour and a half to go. And all of a sudden, I get this text message, hey, are you coming? And it was like 45 minutes after I had to be there. And I'm like, ah, what do I say? And I felt this panic, because my wife was in medical school. We barely get any time to be together. And I knew if I told her one more time that, babes, I'm not going to be home. As soon as sundown hit, she had to get in the books. I knew it would devastate her. And so then the wife calls. I get the call, and I just say, I have a family emergency. I won't be there. And I lied. I lied to them. I drove that next hour just pondering what I'd just done feeling as though I'm going to disappoint my wife. I'm going to disappoint these people. I'm not going to disappoint my wife. I'm going to spend time with her. But the guilt just started to wear on me. I got home. I looked at Elaine and I hugged her. And I told her. And I just started to weep. Why would I lie? 
Why would I lie? Ego. This big three-letter word that makes itself so much bigger than it deserves to be. Ego. I didn't want them to hear, oh my goodness, I forgot. I'm in traffic. I won't be able to be there for maybe another hour and a half or more. I'm so sorry. I didn't value you guys. You know, it just slipped my mind. I couldn't say that. Why? Because of ego. Instead, I lied. Elena looked at me, dude, the sweet woman that she is. She's like, Philip, get your butt in the car and go back two hours. I called them. The husband talked to me. He's crying on the phone, not because of sadness of me. He's like, I did it, Philip. I dedicated the little guy. We did everything you practiced with us. You gave us the Bible verse we picked out. You told us to write out a dream for our child, and I just took the boy. I prayed over him. I read the verse. We're all weeping, and we shared our dream for our boy, and we did it. Ah, it was great. But there was something I didn't do, though. I didn't tell them the truth still. I confessed my sin to that one lady in the church who was trying to help me reach out to them. And she looked at me and she said, you just need to talk to the Lord about this and do what you feel like is right. So it was almost six months later. Now the thing is, I didn't see that couple in church really anymore after that. It really did hurt them, particularly the wife that I didn't show up. Their family flew in, hers, his. People paid hundreds of dollars to be there. The pastor that they connected with wasn't there. Your failures sometimes have consequences. And some of those consequences can't ever be redone. Young man that had drunk, drove, killed those two girls, he can't bring their lives back. But what do you do with failure? Unfortunately, it's those things that you do that you remember throughout your life. I've remembered that sin of my own so many times. I confessed. I shared with them. I apologized. I said everything. I gave my excuses, which I didn't need to, but I did. But I didn't build that relationship back. It's lost. It's done, at least for my part. I've prayed. I've tried to reach out. Someone else hopefully will do that. But what do you do then when you feel like it's lost? You can't bring someone's life back. You can't bring that relationship back to life. You can't repeat that class. You've gotten the rejection letter. You've gotten the rejection from that person. It's done. It's over. You can't bring your mother and father back to life. You can't do X, Y, and Z. When life hits you in the face, what do you do then? David writes the most beautiful psalm ever written, Psalm 51. Never think your failure is who you are. Listen to David's psalm now, Psalm 51. Jump in there with me if you have it. Listen to this. Out in your Bible, it might have this big title on it. In mine, it says the following. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And here, the verse, I'm going to read the whole thing to you because it's that beautiful. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let my bones that have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And bulls will be offered on your altar. David cries out to God in his failure. David not only cries out to God in his failure, but he confesses his sin is in failure. He seeks repentance in his failure. And he knows when everything is done and said, when you know you've done all you can, that's when you just have to fall on the grace of Jesus. A good friend of mine had been trying his very best to do well in school said, Pastor, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And then I saw him just some time later, and he said, man, I spent time in prayer, just seeking after God, trying a different way. They're going to keep me in school. I'm going to go to the next level. They're going to let me go to the next class. When you're at the end of your rope and your failure and your mistakes and your hardships, continue to seek after Jesus. That's what you have to do. That's all you can do. I got to meet that young guy, Mark, of those two sisters. He's now part of actually a program where he does videos of drunk driving and the effects of alcohol on the people. He's now starting his own business and he's doing things with his life. You see, the thing is, your failure doesn't have to be your final outcome because your failure can be what God uses to propel you into the future. So I want to pray for you, bless you, call on you. As this final song is being sung right now tonight, I want you to do something with me. If any of you here tonight just need a cleansing of sorts, you just need God to redeem this failure to be something different than it is, I want to call you to do something. I want you to make a decision. A decision to say, this failure will not be my identity. My identity will be in Christ. If you need that kind of revisioning, reimagining, 
I just want you to cry out in this song. Let God speak to you in this time. May you be refreshed knowing you're forgiven, God is taking care of you, and your failures will be God's blessing. As Joseph looked at his brothers and said, what you thought you would use for evil, God has used for good. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.